April, we began a series of messages entitled, When God Leads the Way. And it's the story of the children of Israel as they were in captivity in Egypt, the story that 400 plus years previous to this, God had promised them that he would deliver them from this forthcoming slavery and that he would lead them into the promised land. And it's the story of how he rescued them and takes them on this tremendous journey. And it's a journey of incredible opportunity. But sadly, as we trace the history of Israel, the vast bulk of them missed many of the opportunities God had for them, missed the promised land because of besetting sin in their life. Sin that was prevalent, sin that wasn't a one-off, but came back in their life over and over and over again. And it's interesting, and you've heard it referenced this morning a number of times, we are in interesting times, difficult times, times that are unprecedented in our lifetime. And I believe God is presenting significant opportunities to us as we go on this particular journey. The opportunities really revolve around the opportunity to shine for Christ in an ever-increasing, and it's a deeply broken, fearful, disillusioned world. We hear evidence of this all the time. How are we going to respond? This is what we want to talk about as we continue this series of messages. Will we step into these opportunities or will we, like the children of Israel, dissolve into and devolve into complaints and murmuring against God and in some cases against his leadership, which was one of their strongly prevalent besetting sins. And so we did 10 weeks earlier in the year. We took a temporary pause. And now we're going to head back into this series. And we're at the point in the story where they have been supernaturally and dramatically released from slavery, where God has begun the journey of bringing them out of Egypt. And Pharaoh has finally, after repeated stubborn episodes in his life in after repeated times where he said they could go and then he would renege on his promises God has convinced him to let his people go and God begins to lead the way again let's pray together father as we bow together and as we step back into this incredible passage of scripture we pray that you'll speak into our heart But Lord, let it not just be some great story, one of the greatest stories in the history of the world, but let it be a story that inspires us to trust you in new ways. Let it be a story that inspires us to be looking for the opportunities you have for us, not to be the kind of people that sort of went the path of the Israelites, but rather the path you would have for us. And we pray these things now with anticipation in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So there was this group of scientists and botanists working in the Swiss Alps, and they were looking for rare types of flowers, and one day they were scoping some cliffs with their optics, and they saw an example of a very rare and beautiful flower that they wanted to harvest and study. 
And they discovered quickly that it was in the middle of a deep ravine on basically perpendicular cliffs on both sides. And they realized that to get someone to harvest this flower, they're going to have to lower this person with ropes over a sheer cliff down the side of, this, of these cliffs to harvest the flower. And of course, being the courageous adventurers they were, they looked across and they saw a young boy that had been watching them, and rather than doing it themselves, they called him over and said, how about if we give you a few, few dollars and we will lower you over this cliff and we'll get you to harvest this flower for us. And the boy looked over the cliff that went straight down And he said, give me a few minutes, I'll be right back. And off he went, and he came back in a few minutes, accompanied by an older man, and he said, I will go over the cliff if this man holds the rope. And he said, well, you've kept us waiting all this time. What's wrong with us? Why couldn't we hold the rope? And the kid said, because this man is my dad. And as we go on this journey, the question is, who is holding the ropes? Because that makes all the journey, as you're, all the difference as you're on the journey. The one who is holding the rope. And we're going to see in this story as we die back into it again, I can trust Abba Father. My heavenly Father is holding the rope. And I can trust him with my very life. And so if you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 14. And we'll begin reading. We're going to read an extensive piece of scripture. Begin reading in verse 5 through the end of the chapter. As we pick the story back up, as they're exiting the nation of Egypt after God miraculously allowed them to go. Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. You'll recall, if you remember in the story, he promised them several times they could leave, and then he would always renege on his promise. And here he does it one more time. What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots, and these were his elite forces. They were the most powerful army in the world at that time, and these were his elite forces, along with all the other chariots of of Egypt, with officers all over them, over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi Hath and opposite Bath-Zephron. Baal-Zephron, sorry. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to get a move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The, Lord, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind, then coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land and the waters were divided and the Israelites through, went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea during the last watch of the night the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place, and the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The tenth plague has come and gone. And ten times God has supernaturally showed the Egyptians and the entire nation of Israel, of Egypt, who God really is. And the last plague, we entitled that message, The Night Nobody Slept. And finally, Pharaoh said, I can't take it anymore. And he says, let these people go. And so the people gather together 
and begin to leave. And it's a multi-day journey with this many people. They would have been traveling very slowly. And after a few days, Pharaoh turns to his advisors and they reconsider their decision to let them go. They're thinking to themselves, think of the economic hardships we're going to face because our pool of two million plus people that were slave laborers for us are no longer going to be available to do the work for us we wanted them to do. And I think even more profound for him was the idea of how humiliated he would be. He was an incredibly arrogant, self centered individual. And he didn't want to lose face in front of his people or around the, from the surrounding nations around him. And he's stung by this humiliation. And he thinks to himself, well, I've reneged on this promise many times before. What's one more time? And he gathers his entire army, the 600 chariots, his elite troops, and all the other chariots and horses and foot soldiers, and he gathers after them. And even though the Israelites were a large mass of people with 600,000 men, they only had a few weapons and they had no training. And they were going up against, the, at that time, Egypt had the most sophisticated army in the world. And so in today's terms, they had the F-22 Raptors, they had the F-35 Lightning, they had the B-2 Bombers, and they had the M1A1 Abrams Tanks. Israel had absolutely no chance. And as a pharaoh is approaching, they can see the clouds of dust of everything coming. And the rear guard of the Israelites runs forward and tells Moses they're coming. And it sweeps through the camp that the Egyptians are coming. And the Israelites, even though they don't say it openly, every one of them feels betrayed by God. Even after all that God has done for them, even after miraculously supernatural, and I mean a real miracle, not the one we often talk about, a real series of miracles, supernaturally God has removed them from this place. And even after all of this, they feel betrayed by him. They outwardly cry out to him, but then they go behind Moses back after that. There's a lesson in this for us. And it might be something like this. Just because at our particular time in our life, our relationship with God is strong, we can easily become lazy and take God for granted and turn against him very quickly. And so the temptation for many of us is to live in the past. We remember those days when we we're strong in our relationship and vibrant in our relationship and growing in our relationship with God. And we try to live off of that rather than remembering that every day is a new day. Every day is a new day where we have to trust him. And we can slowly but surely drift from him and react the way these people did. And so they turn on Moses in verses 11 and 12 and sarcastically begin to ask him a series of questions which they're really directing at God, but they do it through Moses. And they say, it wasn't so bad in Egypt. Why didn't you just let us you know, stay there and serve the Egyptians rather than die out here? And they're afraid and they're shallow people and they have distorted memories of the past. 
Because we know, if you remember the story or you know the story, life in Egypt was not easy. And in the crisis, they remember the way things the way they think they were, but they weren't really at all. We forget that belonging to God does not exempt us from tough things in life. Belonging to God does not exempt us from the unfairness of life. Life can often be very unfair. And enslavement under the hands of Pharaoh was incredibly harsh. And yet they seem in their distorted minds to prefer that rather than living under the leadership of God as their father. So let me just say to you that are here today that are relatively new Christians, and there's a number of you, or those that perhaps have been baptized or something like that, you may find yourself, and we often talk to you about this, but you may find yourself facing a whole new series of battles in life subsequent to coming to, into relationship with God or subsequent to standing up for him publicly through the waters of baptism. And that's because God has done something transformative in your life. He's forgiven your sins. He's saved you. He's given you relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ. Or if you've stood up for him in baptism, um, you've taken a dramatic public stand saying, I am a follower of Jesus. And the evil one, Satan, does not like that. And as long as a person is living in darkness or living as an obedient slave to the evil one, he will kind of more or less leave you alone because he's got you and you're just floating along. But when we surrender our life to God, the opposition is not happy. And in fact, this can be one of the indicators that our relationship with God is strong and vibrant when we're actively being engaged by the evil one and the opposition is strong. And here's Moses, and everyone is really angry at God, but they direct their anger at him. And he shows character, and he shows grace, and he shows faith. And friends, he's... He's been put in this corner, and in this corner, the strong temptation is to look for an inappropriate escape hatch. You know, I'm going to lie my way out of this difficulty. I'm going to cheat on that exam. I'm going to exaggerate on my resume. That dating couple that thinks to themselves, it would be so much cheaper to just live together. And so for the price of a few dollars, They compromise biblical principles, things on which God is abundantly clear. And so here's Moses in this, from a human perspective, incredibly impossible situation. He remembers to pray rather than to panic or to compromise inappropriately. Now there's considerable debate exactly where they were located geographically at this moment, but we do know this for sure. God had led them, and that's a key thing. God had led them into a sort of a cul-de-sac. And whether there was mountainous type, what they call mountains anyways, we would call big hills, whether there was mountainous 
on one side and the open, unending desert on the other and the water in front of them that they could not cross and the enemy behind them. They're in this cul-de-sac and they're basically surrounded. And in this impossible situation, Moses cries out to God. And it's interesting to me as I read verse 15, it's like God is saying to Moses, "Um, you've cried out enough. It's no longer necessary. It's time to get moving. Why are you crying out anymore? Tell the Israelites to move on. And really from this passage, we see there is a time to pray and there's a time to act. And sometimes as wonderful as prayer is and as wonderful as prayer and and, and as necessary as prayer is, and I think it's the thing we should do before we do anything in life, Sometimes that can become an excuse not to act. And we can certainly do both at the same time as well. And so Moses is told by God, get the people moving. And he stretches out his staff and God supernaturally performs another miracle. And of course, when you think about this, we can't understand it with our limited minds. But if he has the power to create the Red Sea in the first place, which it certainly does, it's no big deal to perform this miracle. When I was in my undergrad, I remember one of my professors, Dr. Berg, estimated how wide this gap in the sea was. And it's an educated guess, but he came up with numbers like this. He said, it wasn't a 10-meter gap. It wasn't a 20-meter gap. It wasn't a 100-meter gap. He estimates that it would be a minimum of one to two kilometers wide. And he calculates this on the basis of the average foot speed of that mass of people with all their belongings and all their animals, they would have moved incredibly slow. He calculated that on the average width of the sea and the time that they had to do it, which was the course of the night. And we know from chapter 12 in Exodus that there was 600,000 men plus women and children, the text says, plus a whole multitude of non-Israelites that had seen the power of God in Egypt. And they had bowed the knee to him and given their life to Jehovah God. Which again is an illustration that the gospel and the grace of God is available to all the peoples of the world. And so a great multitude of Egyptians and people from other nations had given their life to God as well. And so conservatively, we're talking two to two and a half million people. Which is about half the size of the population of all of Alberta. Plus their belongings, plus their animals. That's a lot of people. And they would need a huge space to get across. Monster space. As well, we know it had to be big enough that the entire, all the forces that Pharaoh had sent to, to slaughter them would have been able to fit in that space. And so it was a very large expanse. And so across the people go, and meanwhile God confuses the enemy, and then he literally drowns the entire army of Pharaoh when they try to follow in defiance of God even one more time. And their intention was to slaughter who knows how many of these people, probably hundreds of thousands. Their intention was to take the survivors 
and to enslave them again. Their intention was to thumb their nose at God one more time, something they had done over and over and over and over again. God is incredibly patient with people, way more patient than we would ever hope to be. And he finally said, enough is enough. And he kills them all. And it says in verse 18, he does this, the, Lord, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God shows them who God is. So what is God saying to us? A number of things. He's saying occasionally he will lead us into tight places in life. Because we know very clearly from the text, they are in this set of circumstances, they are in this seemingly impossible predicament by the will of God. And so sometimes people think whenever they're going through difficulties in life, this can't be from God, this couldn't have been allowed in my life in God because God doesn't do those kinds of things. He absolutely does at times. And so they are led to this place by the will of God. And it does not mean if you're living in difficulties that you are necessarily out of the will of God. I've talked about this many times. We see this pattern in scripture all the time. There's promise from God, then there's problems, and then there's provision. And they often stir together and go back and forth. Promise, problems, provision. And this is what's going on here. And so you take the young woman who really believes that God has led her to take a particular job. And he, in fact, has. But when a few months go by and they begin to pressure her to do things that are illegal on behalf of the, of the company, she might be tempted to think, how could God have led me here? This can't be of him. And it may well have been from him. And the reason for that is as though she might be tested. And when God tests someone, it's not so they'll fail, it's so they'll develop in their relationship with him. It's it's a test to see whether she'll follow God or not. And his expectation is she will, and that he will provide for her, and that his glory will be revealed. And so just because your business has gone south, or there's some potholes or barricades in life in front of you, it does not mean that God hasn't been leading you. He wants to see what's in our heart. But he also wants to prove that he is faithful and to reveal his glory. And so it might be a tight place for us, but it isn't for him. And I understand, you know, I've lived a few years now. I understand this stuff's incredibly tough. And... uh, There's been many times in my life where I have trusted him in situations where it seemed impossible, but there's times when I haven't. And I feel, even though I've been forgiven for that, I still feel that, you know, why didn't I just trust him? I've learned over the years he can be trusted. He can be trusted. You know, just this week I got a text from a pastor that I know that has just gone through really a devastating thing and has just ripped him apart. And yet he said, and he means it entirely sincerely, 
despite all of that, I know God can be trusted. And he wasn't just saying that because that's the thing you say when you're a pastor. He was being raw. I can be, I can trust him. And he said that because God is the one holding the ropes. When he clearly leads, now listen to me carefully here, okay? When he clearly leads, and it's in keeping with Scripture, and the two will always work together. They will never work against each other. They will never be in contradiction to one another. When God gives us a prophetic word or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or whatever, and it lines up with and is not in contradiction with Scripture, it is then safe to go over the cliff. Now, on the other hand, what if I'm in a mess of my own making? Where because of my sinful choices or unwise choices of not being led by God, by being led by my own desires or sadly my own rebellion, what about then? In every tight place, God still provides a way of escape, even when it's our fault. And God is distinctly not pleased with us. He offers the grace to do what is right. And of course, we'll live with the consequences of our sinful choices. But he gives us the opportunity to do what is right. And that may mean the circumstances will remain unchanged. But God will walk us through them. And his peace will rule in our heart. No matter what the mess is. There's always the right decision that God holds in front of us, that he says, I will help you make it. And it may not be clear right away, and it certainly, at least typically, is not easy. So someone says, well, Scott, how do I recognize the right decision after I've made a series of wrong decisions? Well, usually, and the vast, vast, vast bulk of times, it's just very clearly laid out in Scripture. Usually, when we think it isn't laid out clearly in Scripture, it's because we don't like God's answer. But usually, it's just very clearly laid out in Scripture. But once in a while, there's some level of at least temporary ambiguity. We're not totally sure. So we have to wait for a while for him to clarify. But Scripture, for example, is totally clear. I should break off that sinful relationship I'm involved in. There's no ambiguity about that. Scripture is absolutely clear. I should humble myself and apologize when I've done wrong and make restitution. Absolutely clear. No ambiguity. Scripture is absolutely clear that when I've got that secret, hidden, sinful thing in my life that I think I've had hidden for a long time, I, will allow, I need to allow it to come to the light and to repent of it. And one of the things we know for sure is it's never too late to make the holy choice. It's never too late to make the holy choice. To say, God, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, and I need your help to do it, but in my heart, I know this is the holy choice. Your word has showed me that, and I want to make the holy choice. Would you help me make the holy choice? And he will. With God's help, I will repent, and I'll step out of that sinful pattern that I've gotten myself into. And so whether the case is God has led us into this predicament by his will, or if it's because I have made unwise or sinful or rebellious choices, 
our tight places can become his tight place. So as we go on the journey we're on right now, might be a good question to ask. What Red Sea am I facing? You know, the desert's on that side. There's no water, can't go out there. The mountain ranges are on this side. There's no way that can be navigated and I can't cross the Red Sea. What Red Sea am I facing? And how does God want to restore my soul in this situation? Well, sometimes, at least in my experience, sometimes he just lets us stand facing the Red Sea for a while. Sometimes he even lets us choke a little bit on the dust of that which is chasing us. But what I've also found is he does not forget us. He's never too busy doing something else. And when the time is right, he will deliver. They have waited 430 years at this point. You know, we are the culture that says, isn't there anything faster than a microwave? They have waited 430 years. And this promise from God has been hanging there. And he fulfills it. 430 years. And so we take that situation and we say, whatever it is, whatever the Red Sea is, and we say, Lord, I want to take it out of my hands and I want to put it in your hands and I want to start walking when you say go. And for, for, for me at least, maybe not for you, but for me, I often might find myself, I have to go through the process over and over again because as I reevaluate from time to time, I feel like I've taken control back. Andrew Murray was a famous preacher from some time ago, and he was completely debilitated by back pain. Like, I mean, he was in agony. Um, They probably didn't have chiropractors like that, like we have today back then. And it just caused him agony all the time. And he wrote this as he went through that. In the time of trouble, say, first... God has brought me here. It is by his will I am in this place, and in that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, say, in his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. Therefore, say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. He is holding our rope. 